0: What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Bench Talk. Bench Talk. Bench Talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Welcome
1: to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Bench Talk, The The Week week in in science.
0: Science.
2: God here. Early August skies find planets close to the horizon as darkness fall, roughly about 9.30 in the evening. As I look to the west, Venus struggles to make itself visible before it sets. A flat western horizon might allow one to catch it early. A very thin crescent moon may help the evening of the 10th, though again it too will be near the horizon. By the next night, the moon might be a little easier, but Venus will be much closer to the horizon than at the beginning of the month. So it is pretty much time to say adios to the brightest of the solar system's planets, from our perspective anyway. I mentioned planets, plural, and with nothing more in the west beyond Venus, a swing around to the southeast reveals a second, perhaps a third if the horizon is flat enough. Saturn is the planet most above the southeastern horizon by 9.30 or so in the evening. Jupiter is hugging the horizon. An hour later, both should be high enough to glimpse. Jupiter and Saturn are each in a couple of somewhat obscure constellations. Saturn is located in the constellation Capricornus the. Jupiter is located in the constellation Aquarius, the water bearer. Neither of these have patterns of stars that relate to their namesake, but a good star map, or an app on one's phone, might help determine which stars belong to which. Between these two areas where planets are found, there are several constellations that are a bit easier to see as I sweep the southern sky. By 10 in the evening, the constellation of Scorpius the Scorpion can be seen, almost due south. Its brightest star, Antares, has a reddish hue to it. Antares is a red supergiant, a star far larger in volume than our sun. Red supergiant stars are stars much farther along in their lives than stars like the sun and in their lives in gigantic explosions known as supernova. At a distance of 550 light years it, that happens in human lifetimes, it will be spectacularly bright, but not much more of a threat to life here. Antares marks the heart of the scorpion. To its right are three stars, one above the other, marking the face of the scorpion. Dimmer stars beyond these three can be considered part of its claws. To the left of Antares is a string of stars about the same brightness, moving down toward the southern horizon, then back up, ending at two nearly side by side. This would be the tail and stinger, respectively, of the scorpion. Just west of the scorpion, and at one time part of its claws, can be found a libra of the scales. Of the constellations that mark the zodiac, the sun's apparent path along the sky over the course of a year, it is the only inanimate object. The others consist of some form of living entity. Libra is simple, mainly consisting of four stars of about the same brightness forming a somewhat squashed square. To the left of the tail of the scorpion is the constellation Sagittarius the archer. This constellation is supposed to be a centaur aiming an arrow notched in its bow toward the scorpion, but as a shape easy to identify, it looks more like a teapot. The stars are all the same brightness and can be seen as a triangle closest to the tail of the scorpion, which would be the spout of the teapot. Beyond that are four shaped almost like a rectangle, which would be the handle. The bowl of the teapot would be between these two, with one additional star above the bowl marking the lid of the teapot. The spout of the teapot has passing through it the band Milky Way, which continues up across the sky on toward the northeast. The Milky Way is produced by the disk of stars that make up our galaxy, and it appears to wrap around us because we are within that disk. The center of the galaxy is off in the direction of the spout of Sagittarius. We and the other stars that make up our galaxy orbit that region. There is evidence of a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, much as has been discovered at the heart of other galaxies, but there is little to fear from it. At a distance of about 26,000 light-years, it is too far away to draw us in. In fact, black holes are generally in control of the area near them and act as massive bodies, just like other massive bodies, at greater distances. If our sun was replaced by a black hole of the same mass as the sun, for example, We would keep orbiting it just as we orbit the sun today. Yes, it would be dark and cold and we would likely not survive, but the earth would orbit about the black hole just like it orbits the sun in its stable orbit. The other thing I like to look for in August skies are shooting stars. As August opens, several minor showers are active, though past the date of their peak activity. These would be the Alpha Capricornids, the Delta Aquariids, and the Eta Aquariids. Sporadic at best, you might simply be surprised by meteors coming out of the southern sky direction. But the anticipated meteor shower of August is known as the Perseid meteor shower. The Perseid shower is a broad date phenomenon with a specific night when one might see many more meteors than any other in that range of dates. One can see Perseid meteors from around July 17th through August 26th this year, but the peak night will be overnight from August 11th to the early morning hours of August the 12th. Often a good shower with hourly rates of 30 or so, this year the moon will not be an issue during peak times, especially in the early morning skies. It will be a couple of days before first quarter phase and set around 1030. As the meteors increase after midnight and are best observed before sunrise, that should put the moon out of the way of viewing. Meteor showers are patience builders. First, one needs dark skies away from city lights if one wants to see the most possible. I get comfortable chairs to sit on, or even blankets to lie on, though sleep may overtake you if you're not careful in such a reclined position. The Perseids get their name because they seem to come from the direction of the constellation called Perseus, which rises about midnight in the northeastern sky. There may be some meteors seen before midnight, but the count increases as the night continues. Once comfortable, further patience building comes from the wait to see any meteors. I scan the whole sky and generally not in the direction of Perseus itself. The meteors may have their path traced back to Perseus, but are seen well away from that constellation. With others accompanying me, watching the whole sky is easier, but it can be disappointing when they, and maybe not you, get to see one. Like constellation fighting, this is an activity that only needs your eyes and a dark sight to view from. Friends and or family make it that much more fun and helps to pass the time.
1: Welcome to Bench Talk Live. This is Amanda Fuller. I'm the executive director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. And we are very excited to have guests with us this evening on the topic of Black Hole. This is a program that we started in 2020, and we've been doing it about once a month. It's a public free program, of course, and Kentucky Academy of Science is really excited to showcase our members as featured speakers for these programs. We've had all different topics beginning last year, and so we do these about once a month. You can find it on our website at kyscience.org. The Kentucky Academy of Science is an organization of about 4,000 scientists across Kentucky, across all different disciplines. We do an annual meeting every year. We have a journal. We have a speakers bureau, so people can request speakers for events. Uh, I also want to shout out our partner for these programs, which is the Bench Talk podcast and radio show. They are on 106.5 Forward Radio. And they do a weekly podcast for a half an hour every week on various science topics. Some of these Bench Talk Live presentations get rebroadcast on the podcast. So you can listen to it online or you can listen to it live on the radio, rebroadcasting three times every week. So we're really excited to have them as a partner and really glad for what they do to lift up science research and helping Kentuckians learn more about the great science that's happening right here in Kentucky. So thank you so much to our friends and colleagues at Bench Talk. And so tonight I want to introduce our speakers. Dirk Gruppe is an astronomer at Moorhead State University.
0: Uh, So my name is Dirk Gruppe. I'm an associate professor of astrophysics and space science at the Space Science Center at Moorhead State University. Came to Moorhead in August 2014 and been there ever since. I am... also becoming the president of the Kentucky Astronomical Society in April. So we will have a virtual meeting there as well. So if you are interested in black holes, if you want to know more about astrophysics, ast- astronomy, and so and on, feel free to join us there. I have worked on black holes for a long time. This is basically what I'm doing is observational astronomy, primarily with X-ray satellites. And uh, before I came to Mohed, I was at Penn State. I was on with the NASA SWIFT mission for about nine and a half years. SWIFT is a gamma ray burst explorer. So that mission studies, you know, the formation of black holes, basically, because when you have a very massive star, these stars explode and they form a black hole, a solar mass black hole. Now, the ones that I'm talking about today, are they are much more massive. They are supermassive black holes. They have masses of millions or even billions of solar masses. So let me just start, because when we start with black holes, We have to actually go back a little bit more in time that most people probably don't expect, but it starts pretty much with Isaac Newton. And in 1666, Newton had to isolate himself because guess what happens in 1666? a pandemic happened. And we know all by now what you have to supposed to do during a pandemic, right? You do wearing a mask, you do social distancing. And that's exactly what Newton did. So he went out in his countryside. In the countryside, he was not in the city anymore. In Cambridge, he was a student in Cambridge. So he went out in the countryside and he had time to think about physics and he developed the laws of mechanics. He also developed the laws of gravity. And That brings me, you know, to the first experiment. I mean, what happens if I'm throwing this ball in the air? It comes back, right? Why does it come back? Because of gravity. And we know all this. If I want to launch this ball, let's say I want to bring this ball in an orbit, then I have to throw it with a velocity that is what we call the orbital velocity that keeps something in an orbit. And it will stay in an orbit because of what we call angular momentum. That becomes later on also important when we talk about black holes. Now, if I want to really throw this ball, let's say, to Mars, I would be super rich if I could do this, right? But if you do this, then you have to exceed the escape velocity. And this escape velocity for the Earth, for example, is about 11.2 kilometers per second. Now, formula down there, this is then where people start thinking about it. And this starts in the end of the 18th century, where two gentlemen, one was John Mitchell in England, the other one was uh, Pierre-Simon Laplace in France. They were asking, well, what happens... If there is a body that is so compact that not even light can escape, people at the time knew already from experiments, there was Ola Wimmer was the first one who did this experiment measuring the speed of light that it was about 300,000 kilometers per second. So about 186,000 miles per second. Now they also knew, or they had the idea that light was made out of particles. So their idea was if light is made out of particles. Well, then like I'm throwing this ball in the air here, the particle would be dragged back by gravity, right? And so then the question is, of course, so what happens if this escape velocity becomes the speed of light? How compact does this body has to be? Well, there's the solution, right? I mean, you do simple math, you solve, you put the escape velocity is C, you solve this equation here, and there is your solution. So your body has to be two times the gravitational constant. Don't worry about that is. It's a constant. It's a very small number. And then you multiply it by the mass and you divide it by the speed of light square. That's it. The idea was wrong because the speed of light is always constant, at least from an observer at that spot. So light cannot be simply dragged back. That was wrong. But the answer was absolutely right. The correct answer comes from Einstein's general theory of relativity, which Einstein developed by the end of 1915. He had this famous race with David Hilbert in Göttingen, and David Hilbert lost by about two weeks. Einstein won. And uh, he published his general theory of relativity. And then another astrophysicist, Karl uh, Schwarzschild, who actually was the director of the observatory in Göttingen for a few years between 1901 and 1909. And he, in 1916, developed this very complicated looking formula here, which is the Schwarzschild solution. And that's the Schwarzschild solution for a black hole. And basically, for, or should I should say, not really necessary for a black hole, but for any kind of massive body. And what this describes is the distance of two points in space time. And... What Einstein developed already in the special theory of relativity was that you cannot separate time and space anymore separately, they have to be one entity, they are space time. And that is basically the description here. Now, the important part is this part over here. This is the warpage of space time around any kind of massive body. So this one over RS over R. Now, when you calculate this RS here is exactly our Schwarzschild radius that, you know, already Mitchell and Laplace calculated in the end of, of the 18th century, which is quite interesting. When you think about it, you use Newtonian physics, your assumption is fully wrong, but you get the correct answer. Sometimes it works just out this way. And when you do this, when you use the Schwarzschild radius, well, this is the event horizon of a black hole. You can actually directly calculate this. And when you do this for the Earth, for example, well, you take the two times the gravitational constant, multiply this by the mass of the Earth, the six times 10 to 24 kilograms, and divide it by the speed of light C. Well, that gives you about nine millimeters. So it's about this big. That's how big the earth would be if the earth would now go into a black hole. When you do this with the sun, it's about two miles, it's about three kilometers uh, radius, so six kilometers diameter. I explain my students all the time it's about the size of Moorhead. That's what the black hole is. But, you know, those would be very, very small black holes. The ones we are talking about later on those are much more massive. They are much bigger in size. And I will talk about also the numbers, how big in size they are, because it becomes pretty incredible how big these black holes can, can become. Now, black holes in the universe are actually the simplest object in the universe, believe it or not, because you can describe them by just two parameters, theoretically three, and that's the mass of the black hole, the angular momentum or the spin of the black hole, and theoretically also an electric charge. Now, all of our black holes in the universe are neutral, which means we only have to care about the spin, so how fast the thing rotates, and we have to talk about the mass of the black hole. All the other information that went into the black hole Little squeezy balls like this one, stars, you know, Klingons, spacecrafts, you know, bird of praise, whatever. Doesn't matter. It's all gone. The information is absolutely gone. And that scared Einstein, for example, because he never really believed in black holes. He think these are just hypothetical things. They don't really exist. We don't have this because nothing can in- isolate itself from the rest of the universe. But they actually do. And I will show you tonight how we can actually know that these black holes really exist. Now, the first hint that a black hole exists came from X-ray observations in the early 1960s, 1964, from sounding rocket experiments from Cygnus X-1. That's a star or a double star in the constellation of Cygnus, which is an extremely bright X-ray source. And there's absolutely no way from a star having a single single star expressing that amount of X-rays. The only way you can do this is with the forces that we call accretion. And when you look at my background here, that's a black hole with an accretion disk, an artist's conception of this, how this would look like. Because in the accretion disk, we are converting gravitational energy into radiation. This accretion disk becomes very hot. It has, you know, temperatures of... Hundreds of thousands of millions of Kelvin, and it's like basically you you wrap your hands together, or when you want to stop your car, what you're doing with your car when you when you brake your car is you simply convert kinetic energy into radiation because your brake pads go on the brake disc, they heat up and you know they radiate infrared radiation. That's what you're doing. The accretion disk basically in the same way. So this was the first hint. The other hint came basically from galaxies because there was already postulations that by the end of the 1980s that every galaxy in the universe would contain a supermassive black hole in its center. And where came this idea from? Well, when you look at galaxy models, how galaxies evolve, there was always the idea that galaxies co-evolve with a black hole that is in their center. And also our Milky Way has a supermassive black hole in its center. And you may have heard this last year, the Nobel Prize for physics was given to Roger Penrose, who did a lot of theoretical work on black holes. And it was given to Reinhold Gensel in Garching for his work on the Galactic Center and Andrea Gates at UCLA. And and what these two guys were doing, they used telescopes, massive, uh, really big telescopes, infrared telescopes, where they observed the Galactic Center every month. And they took a photograph every month of the stars in the Galactic Center. And here's the little video that they put together. And what you see is now the motion of the stars around this Galactic Center. Now, why is this important? Well, like the planets going around the sun... The same laws of physics, the same laws of gravity, or even the same laws of relativity apply here, of course, as well. So by the motion of the stars, by the velocity of the star and the distance of the star, we can determine the mass of the stars. In the same way we can derive the mass of the sun this way, we take the velocity of the Earth going around the sun, that's 30 kilometers per second. Uh, multiply this by the distance uh between us and the sun, that's 150 million kilometers and divided by the gravitational constant. And with this, we get the mass of the sun, which is two times 10 to 30 kilograms. If we do this for the mass of uh, the black hole in our galaxy, we get about 4 million solar masses. Now you will say, okay, wait a second. That doesn't tell me anything, right? I mean, this this can be a black hole. This could be also a cluster of some, you know, maybe neutron stars, right? Whatever. Now, yes, you could do this, the problem is that the size of this, when you look at the distance here, is only 120 times the distance between us and the sun. So you basically have to squeeze something like 2 million, 4 million neutron stars into the space of our solar system. And that's gravitationally inconstant. So it's, it's, you know, instable. It will simply collapse into a black hole. So you end up with a black hole. That's your first proof that a black hole really exists and black holes are really there. The other thing, is, you probably heard about this about two years ago, was a big press release from the Event Horizon Telescope. But this is the first photograph, so to speak, of a black hole. And what this shows is the black hole in the center of a galaxy that is relatively nearby, about 300 million light years away from us. For us astronomers, for me, with the objects that I'm studying, this is pretty close by. This object has a black hole that is a thousand times larger than the black hole in the center of our galaxy, so it's about four billion solar masses. And they were able to resolve this because you need a black hole and you need a black hole that is relatively close by. What they were doing here is they used a technique that is called interferometry, where you put radio telescopes all around the Earth together. The problem you are seeing is in a telescope is that your resolution, how close you can, how much you can separate two points depends on the size of the telescopes. And in particular, this is crucial for radio astronomies. I should say this picture here is not an optical picture. It's, uh, it's terahertz. It's, you know, sub-millimeter frequency, 10 to 12 hertz. And what they got was they got a resolution that is millions of an arc second. And if you want to have any idea what this means is, that corresponds to about two millimeters on the moon. So if you are able to resolve something of two millimeters, so little dust grain on the moon, then that's the resolution we are looking at this this event. So this is real. This is really a proof that black holes really exist. We can take photographs of these black holes. We can measure their masses. Now in other galaxies, it's not as easy because first of all, they are much further away. We don't have the resolution that we can do with M87. Or like with a galactic center, we cannot measure directly stars around the black hole. So we have to use other techniques. There's a technique that we use in active, or active galactic nuclei, which is called reverberation mapping, which allows you to measure the distance uh, between the central source and your line-emitting clouds. Now, one thing is we are missing intermediate black holes. We have the solar mass black holes. We have the supermassive black holes with millions or billions of solar masses. But what we have never seen is Black holes with something like a 1,000 or 10,000 solar masses, they're totally missing. And that's a rigged riddle because we have to ask ourselves also, how do we get to these supermassive black holes? We know that the solar mass black holes exist, for example, from what I mentioned earlier, gamma ray bursts. So we have masses of maybe 10 solar masses, but how do these things grow? Now, they can grow by dumping matter on this, which we call accretion, or they can also merge by, you know, having two black holes merging together. And that's what we actually see in gravitational wave detectors then black holes are merging. And in a matter of fact, the black holes that were discovered first through the gravitational wave detectors in 2015 had black hole masses of something like 30 solar masses each. So this is one of the big riddles that we still have. There are lots of fun things that black holes can do, like, for example, disrupting stars. You can discover them with X-ray surveys. So if a star gets too close to the black hole due to the tidal forces, the star will simply disrupt. And what surprises people a lot is well, then you ask them, you know, what do you think destroys the star most, the more smaller black hole or the very massive ones? Well, the answer is, of course, always the very massive ones, but that's light, unfortunately the wrong answer because what really disrupts it is the difference between the two sides of the star. It's the same thing when you look at your feet and your head. What disrupts you when you approach a black hole would be the difference in the gravitational force on your feet and your head. And if you have a small black hole, then that difference can be significant. But if you have a very massive black holes, those with billions of solar masses, you just dive into that thing. You just fall into it. You just go through the event horizon. You don't get destroyed this way. And the same thing with stars. If you have a million solar mass black hole, like the one in our galaxy, this can happen. And these events, these uh, tidal disruption events, happen about every 10,000 to about 100,000 years in a galaxy. So we should see some. At some point in our galaxy as well, because from the picture that I showed you from the little movie that I showed you from Andrea Gates measurements, there is a dense star cluster in the center of our galaxy. So these stars get disrupted all the time. Now, other galaxies, they have what we call active galactic nuclei in their center. Those are accreting supermassive black holes. Those are the uh, objects that Miriam and I am studying. What happens here is you cannot just dump matter onto a black hole. I ask this my students all the time. What happens if the sun could all of a sudden, boof, become a black hole? What will happen? Are we sucked into the black hole or nothing happens? And then most students will answer, well, we get sucked into the black hole. Well, the answer is nothing happens because of angular momentum conservation. We will remain on our orbit because all the orbit cares is how much mass you have in your center. If this is a star, if this is a neutron star or a black hole, is irrelevant. All that matters is the mass in the center. But how do you get something towards the black hole? You have to use friction. And this is what happens in what we call the accretion disk. In the accretion disk, matter streams towards the black hole. Through friction, the matter gets slowed down. And then like a satellite in an orbit, right? When you look at the low-Earth orbit satellite, that thing would stay up in orbit forever because it interacts still with the upper atmosphere in four or five hundred kilometers. The orbit decays and then eventually it will be destroyed in the atmosphere, but only because we have friction in the atmosphere. And that's the same thing here with the accretion disk. Now, accretion is a very efficient process. You can convert, if you have a rotating black hole, up to 30% of the gravitational energy that you dump towards the black hole can, can be converted into radiation these quasars, those active galactic nuclei, they can exceed the luminosity. So all the power that is coming from all the stars in the galaxies by factors of something like a hundred or even a thousand. So imagine this, you have the Milky Way with 200 billion stars. And then if you have an active galactic nucleus in the center of like our Milky Way, this center could outshine all the stars in our galaxies by really by factors by a hundred or a thousand. So it's basically like if you had 200 trillion stars, not 200 billion stars, 200 trillion stars. So it's just amazing. We have the supermassive black hole in the center, the accretion disk. Then we have what we call the broad line region around this, which is a region of gases that are still in the vicinity of the black hole. And we can use that region to measure the black hole mass. That's how we do this, because by the velocity, we can measure the velocity of the gases going around from the width of emission lines that we see from these objects. Then much further out is what we call the narrow line region. That's about 400 light years away from the center. This region here in the center is relatively small. is only a few light weeks, maybe a like month. Now these, what we call also Seifert galaxies, they are named after Carl Seifert, one of the first astronomers who looked at these type of objects in 1943. And he noticed that they have very strong emission lines and also very broad uh, hydrogen lines. And you can only explain these hydrogen lines, the width of these hydrogen lines, by assuming that the gas is moving around the central source, a supermassive black hole. Now, the sources that I'm in particular studying are these what is called narrowline c Seyfert one galaxies. And uh, why are these narrowline c Seyfert one galaxies in so interesting? Because they are highly variable. And it's just amazing that these sources go on very, very small timescales. What you see on this plot over here is more of 10 years of data in this plot. So these are just some date number that we use in astronomy. And then this is how bright the sources in X-rays. And this source goes up by factors of 30 in a few days. I mean, it's just crazy how variable these sources are. Now, what these narrow-line C4-1 galaxies most likely are, they are relatively young you know, little toddlers, at some point they have a fit, they throw their fits and that's what you see, they throw tantrums, they have outbursts like my nail one galaxies. And they also have very strong outflows. You see them, you see winds, you see accretion disc winds sometimes from these sources. And the other interesting thing about this is I mentioned how black holes are growing An important way how black holes grow is through accretion. These accrete typically about the solar mass per year. So you can imagine you take the entire sun and throw it into a black hole every year. And if you do this over a million years, well, then your black hole has grown by one million solar masses. So they basically can double their size by roughly about millions of years, which is, you know, in astronomical terms is not very long. And that's it. I hope I gave you a little bit of an insight what black holes are, that these things really exist. And then also partly what I'm doing, what we are doing uh, when we do astrophysics with these uh, active galactic nuclei. Thank you. That
1: was Professor
2: Dirk Group, who's at Moorhead State University here in Kentucky. Thanks, Dirk. And thanks also to J. Scott Miller and Amanda Fuller. You've been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. See you next week,
1: and keep your eyes on the sky.